Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to our first uh, live Q&A as Mobius, the long road to, to privacy. Um, I think just to quickly welcome everyone that's attending, um, we've already had a few questions around some technical aspects. So please feel free to use the chat functionality in the, the screen, and then please feel free to use the Q&A section. Um, to post any of your questions that you'd like us to answer. Um, so how we're going to structure this morning is, is quite informal. We'd, we'd like to keep it fresh and get you guys to, to interact with us. Um, so we'll, we'll be taking your questions and really try and answer everything. Um, <laughs> I think we've, we've set up the time and, and obviously you're welcome to, to drop off if you need to or if you have any other commitments, we'll make this recording available to you. And we will also make um, you know, any, any slides or presentation decks or links that we share available with you as well. So just by way of welcoming my co-host, um, Candace Jackson, uh, she heads up our national privacy service line from a Mobius consulting perspective. And we are going to be your in-flight entertainment for the morning. Morning, everyone. All right. Okay, so maybe just um, one or two quick things as well. Um, remember to follow the Mobius Consulting page on LinkedIn, um, where we post very relevant industry information, um, service information, and just some, some general tips and, and comments as well. All right. Okay, so I think let's get started. Um, let's see, Candice, if you maybe want to kick off with one or two of the, the pre-submitted questions, then I'll start having a look at the Q&A. No, thanks, Raleen. So morning, everybody. Um, and like Raleen said, we are going to keep this quite informal. Um, so, so post as much questions. But some of the questions that have come through, what we've done is we've grouped some of them just to make sure that we can answer as much as possible, as much as keep as the, the similar themes to go through through some of the questions. So one of the questions that we got, and, and just a reminder is just that, you know, we are looking at it from a a privacy um, perspective, so not just Poppy, um, MAU or GDPR from the UK perspective and EU side of things. So when we talk about privacy, um, we'll obviously just touch on those things. So someone asked if, you know, if there's a, a one man organization, um, but they are processing personal information um, and, you know, there is person, personal information taking, taking place. You know, how do they actually operate in in a in, a, in an environment where, where privacy is required? You know, do they have to register as a as a DPO or an information officer or an information protection officer, whichever term you use? So that was the one question. The other question was also around SMEs who outsource a lot of information, you know, they outsource a lot of their functions. Um, they don't have big budgets. How do they go about implementing um, privacy? And, you know, what does their privacy journey look like? And to answer both of those questions, you know, you've really got to look at how much information is being processed. Now you'll be like, okay, well, guys, how do I even start with that? I don't know where to start. Um, and there's a lot of free available sources as well as recognized reliable sources. So it's not just that we're sending you for, for free stuff, but if you had to look at, um, you know, the, the ICO within, within the EU, um, the, the Information Commissioner's Office, where there's a lot of free available assessments and information, as well as from an MAU perspective, and even in South Africa as well, there's a lot of things out there where you can already assess, assess what is my extent of processing personal information, um, you know, and it gives you that what are the, the immediate things I need to do. 
also reaching out to your local data protection authorities will guide you in terms of, you know, when do I need to register? Do I actually need to register? Or do I just need to have these certain things in place? They are there to be your guiding force, to help you, to take you through this journey as well. Um, and I know sometimes you, you'll feel like, oh, but am I actually going to get through to them? They, that's their reason. That's what they're there to do. Um, I know registering of, of DPOs and IPOs is a big step. And through that application process, you know, they'll also tell you, okay, through the extent of you processing personal information, whether you need to be registered, et cetera. Now, I know some people are more along the journeys than others, especially when we're talking country-specific journeys. But giving those things consideration, extent of processing, looking at reliable free sources that are already out there, which not only includes assessments, but also guiding you through the implementation journey, notices, policies that you need to have in place, and then reaching out to those data protection authorities to really help you in terms of guiding you when you need to, when you don't need to. Um, and then also, you know, we, we, we get information and when we know more, we put it out there as, as public knowledge. It's not something you have to be like, oh, I need to sign up for this. We really are trying to communicate as much as possible when we hear something that you guys get it firsthand, that it's on our LinkedIn page, that it's on our, our, our website is really just be news because as we move along this privacy journey, I think things are going to change. Um, and I think we're going to get more and more examples of, okay, am I an exception to the rule or, or is this a norm or how do I need to go about that? And as we get it, we'll share it with you. Raleen, I'm not sure if there's anything you'd like to add on that one. Yeah, you hit it on the head. Thank you, Candice. And I think guys, also forums like this where you're invited to, you're welcome to, to ask your questions anonymously as well. Um, when you do put your question in your Q&A section, you can tick the anonymous um, button and, and really just use the opportunity to, to ask and, and you know, gain a bit of, of assurance in terms of what you're doing. Um, I know there's also the International Association of Privacy Professionals who you know, have members across the world. And I think some of the, the attendees today also are, are members of that association. They hold frequent, um, well, these days webinars um, around you know, what are the hot topics from a privacy perspective? What are some of the, the issues that some organizations are facing? Um, and what we'll do just at the end of this session is we've, we've had a, a webinar previously where we discuss the, the common pitfalls of privacy compliance projects or programs. So we'll just share like a summary of some do's and don'ts um, if you are starting your journey or whether you are in the middle of it or, or done. Okay. All right. Okay, I see we just have a question that popped in. Maybe before we answer that, I think a, a very interesting question that, that we received is, when, when we are dealing with data subject right requests, how, how is the best way to approach it, have a process in place um, so that when we receive these requests, we are able to manage it? So what, what we normally do is we try and separate the different kinds of data subject requests. And, and oftentimes, you know, there would be one role or function that would oversee this or coordinate it for, the, for a company. And those requests or those data subject rights are normally the right to access information, then the right to uh, correct, delete, move it um, normally, um, and then also direct marketing that I'd like to kind of bucket in data subject rights also. So the best and the most practical way to, to approach this is 
to really just consider how your organization operates, the kind of data subjects you have, which would normally be your customers or consumers, if you are directly offering goods and services, your employees, um, any vendors or third parties that, that, that you deal with. Um, and yeah, so those are normally the, the three big types of data subjects. Then don't over-engineer this. Sit down with relevant teams across your organization. So normally a compliance, legal, IT risk teams should be involved in these processes. And really consider, you know, if we get an access request from a, a customer, that's maybe, maybe their data is on a legacy system, it may be archived 20 years ago in a remote location. How are we practically going to, to manage this request? And is it even possible for us to go back and go get all of that information? And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm stopping at this point is, although general privacy legislation, and I know from a South African perspective as well, give the right for us to be able to access our information, there's also certain operational considerations um, that organizations can use to actually not provide that access. It may be that the, those archived folders or files are, are not able to be retrieved. It could be that legacy systems have actually be, been decommissioned. So there's normally a reason um, you know, attached to not being able to, to give access as well. And sometimes it's really straightforward and you can give the access, all right? So, I think where we're going with this is that it needs to be approached on a case-by-case -case basis. Yes, you can procure a standard off-the-shelf template to deal with data subject rights, but when you get these in your organization, you're going to have to sit down and see how they apply. The same goes for deleting and moving information. If we're going to have to delete records in, in a system and it, it creates system failures or operational issues, we actually have a reasonable ground to go back and say, well, we're not able at this stage to, to provide you um, or, or to manage your request. However, this is how we are ensuring that your data is secure or we will de-identify de it or anonymize it. So to give them the actual remedial controls if we can't um, manage their, their, their right request. Okay, And the last one is direct marketing. I know this is quite a hot topic and, and a lot of direct marketing teams are you know, wondering what, what should they be doing and not. And I think the, you know, just the, the crux of it is go with the more stringent approach, not, not to, to, to hinder any of your operations, but go with a specific opt-in approach and get people to actually want to, to subscribe to your newsletters and your communication and your SMSs. Um, and then deal with them, you know, at a service level where, where possible. Um, a lot of companies are implementing, you know, big direct marketing kind of solutions. Um, depending on the size of your organization, that may not be necessary. Um, so again, consider size and, and where you are from an operations perspective. I think very briefly, I touched on direct marketing. So if there are any other direct marketing questions let's let's get to those as well if you guys post them i see natalie posted a question so in terms of data subject rights what information or records do we have to provide does this include special personal information e.g health info etc so i think just to 
answer Natalie's question. When you are completing that PI manual for specific uh, organizations, when you want to request your information, you can specify what you want to have access to. I think it's, it's very important to specify because organizations will focus on, on that um, in terms of the level of effort and how far back they need to go from a system perspective. Okay. Um, just looking at some of the other questions, as we spoke about uh, DPOs and, you know, re just re registering an IPO and information officer, um, we've got a question that, you know, who can be a DPO in an organization and, you know, what do best practices say about this? And I think you, you'll get weird and wonderful answers and you'll get a lot of finger pointing because, you know, it is a big role. Um, no one really wants to take responsibility, but all the all the the legislations or regulations that we look at really does look at the you know um, this person having a role within the organization where they can be independent in terms of their general role that they may perform so you know we've seen anything from a compliance role to to a risk role which is the the better suited roles because you've got oversight over the organization etc a lot of the times we do see the, the information security, the IT function, um, we, we always go with that one with, with a lot of caution. Um, and the reason why we do it is just because of when we talk about personal information or personal data um, or just data, you, you're talking about both electronic as well as hard copies. Um, and as soon as you just go with the, the IT lens or you bring an IT focus onto it, you sometimes may forget, you know, where all your hard copy information um, resides as well. And that's always important. So I think, you know, that role can be within a function within the organizations that oversees operations, that has a good understanding of the business, but would also be able to you know to put things in place and to guide the organization to say okay guys what you're doing here is wrong or may not be compliant let me help you to do it in in, in that way so they need to have a, a position within the company where they can implement privacy where they can monitor privacy um, and that's what we look at they don't say put it in this function or, or put it in that function but put it in a function that has enough oversight and and can be subjective to to what needs to happen from a privacy perspective but then also so always consider the, you know, the, the deputy roles or the champion roles that you really need to, to implement privacy, because as much as you're going to register somebody, it's not a one man job to, to implement privacy within the organization. Right. Um, just checking. No, no real other questions about DPOs. Um, one of the other things that we that we're just going to touch on is a little bit on children's information. Um, and you know it's always a it's always a hot topic, and I think even even more recently, um, schools, universities, um, aftercares, people that provide educational training after school, um, you know they also starting to ask a lot of questions. How much information can I collect? Um, you know what consent do I need when I'm collecting that information? A lot of people are taking pictures, and you know they want to share it and things like that. How do they go about it? And it's all about you know here when you're dealing with with children's information, it's a it's a whole new ball game. It's not just personal information. It's special personal information. It's got the way you need to protect it, the way you need to handle it, but the way you need to actually get consent before you even start collecting that information is is very different. 
Um, and you know, you've got to be quite explicit in that consent. So if you want to, to take a picture while your child is, is learning, or I mean, while the child is learning, um, and you know, you want to share it and things like that, you need that parental consent before, before you actually put it out there. If you're going to be doing extra programs, or you know, you're going to be using a third party to, to communicate with parents and things like that, you need to notify them. So because it's dealing with minor information, you really have to make sure that you have the right processes in place. Um, again, how long information can be collected from a from children's personal information perspective? Again, you've got to rely on the the regulations and the legislations within your within the country specific that relate to that type of processing. Um, Poppy, uh, the the Data Protection Act, GDPR, none of them tell you keep information for this long. They will all refer to you to the the actual acting um, legislation or regulation within that country. So that's always the key just to, to look out for because those are your, your guiding principles in terms of how long you keep certain information um, and that's where it will guide you on, on the children's information but it really is just touching on you know here it, we need to take extra care we need to put extra security safeguards um, and we really need to be open about what we do um, I think nursery schools and cameras and all of these things, you know, it's, it's all new. It's all the direction that we're moving in. But as you do these things, you've got to make sure that you've got those right controls in place, starting with that um, explicit consent um, from, from the beginning. I think just leading on from that, um, we've, we've got a, a, a nice question around what is the role or responsibility of enterprise software development companies uh, when it comes to privacy? And, and you know, when they develop solutions, and I think we've had one or two questions around cloud as well. So I think on the one hand, the cloud service providers or the, the companies developing software really have a responsibility to, to, develop, to develop their software with privacy in mind. Now, normally when we say that there's, there's something, there's a term called privacy by design. So from the initial stages of developing the solution, to um, setting up any user interfaces and even deployment and management to really consider the, the life cycle of privacy um, in that development or solution. When it comes to you know, companies actually using those services and software, you know, the companies are still responsible to, to configure any specific security controls that they want to or, or need to make sure is, is in place. Yes, the service providers can guide, um, but there's still a responsibility on, on, on the company to, to implement the relevant controls and to work with the, the cloud software providers to make sure that those settings are, are in fact appropriate. Okay. I think there's a lot of um, you know, information around what are the minimum kind of practices. So you know, maintaining transparency when you're using cloud services, making sure your notifications are up to date and when you're onboarding clients or employees to communicate, um, maintaining security mm -hmm. from an internal perspective, um, doing, doing regular uh, tests on your networks and your, your software providers, you know, those kind of elements. And then, yeah, I think especially in smaller organizations, really build the relationships with those, those development houses or those service providers um, to get guidance from them in terms of what are the minimum or the best practice that should be implemented. Well, and I think just touching on from that, we we had a few additional questions just around, um, you know, cloud providers, if you've previously hosted on-premise and now you've moved to the cloud, um, and obviously now your, your information no longer resides within your country, it, it's now residing somewhere else, you know, do you need to notify um, data subjects? Now, 
do you need to send them a possible message to say your, your, your data is moved? That's, you know, we don't need to go to that extent. But in your notices, you need to say that information may be crossing the South African borders or the MAU borders or the European borders and to which countries they may be going to. So you need to have those lists of, of countries where you, you could potentially be sending it to. And you as, as, the, as the owner of that data really need to make sure that you actually understand, you know, if I'm using a cloud provider, where is that information going to be residing? Because a lot of the times we've gone in and we said, okay, fine, do you understand who your third parties are? Yes, we've got these cloud providers. Okay, where's the information residing? And a lot of the time it's like a bit of a stumbling question to be like, hmm. I'm not really so sure, oh, I need to find out. So, you know, it's about you firstly understanding and making sure like, you know, do you understand um, what those in-country privacy legislations or regulations look like? Do they actually have anything? Um, what do they need to comply with? Is it more stringent or less stringent than where you reside? And I think it's really just understanding that and then putting that notification through your external um, website notices, put it out there to say, okay, fine, we share information with third parties and it goes to these jurisdictions as well. So that you're giving that, that transparency to say you understand as well as, hey, I'm letting you know that this is where it could reside. And I think where the world is moving with cloud, it's more and more important for us to start um, really understanding that, that, that uh, the, the residing of information and just understanding the, the jurisdiction. Um, Raline also touched on a bit of contracts and, and SLAs and another one that, you know, is, is a big one. And I think the reason why it is so big is because the number of breaches that we've seen over the last few years, there's a portion of it um, is, you know, is due to third parties and it's moving more and more, you know, due to third parties. So, you know, often we, we use these third parties, we, we contract with them and we get into a point where we now need to either update certain clauses from a privacy perspective or we may be going through new negotiations, et cetera. At a point in time, you may have a third party that says, listen, I don't wanna sign. I don't wanna, I don't wanna sign this contract. I don't agree with the terms. I don't agree with what you're saying is my responsibility. I can't do X, Y, Z. At that point in time, what do you do, okay? You don't want to get to a position where you just sign the contract and then you move on and a year down the line, you've got a breach with this third party because what recourse do you have? Because they actually didn't sign anything. You know, that is at the point where you say, okay, guys, you know, you either need to sign or we're not going to go into services with you because, you know, it is, you know, it's your information. And obviously you've got to look at the nature of services that they provide. There's a lot that goes into it. But if someone is providing you services where they are dealing with personal information, they really acting on, on your behalf or they really doing key processing activities on personal information and you're not entering into an agreement with them, you're putting yourself at risk. Um, so really, you know, you, that's where you either say, okay, fine, I have to look for an alternative provider, or you make them sign the, the agreement. Um, obviously, again, just related to the processing and what activities are actually um, involved there. Raleen, anything, any, any key questions coming through on, on our live Q&A, or are there some other ones that we can cover through from some people that posted beforehand? Yes. So, so everyone attending, I am typing a few answers and I know Candice will as well to some of the shorter um, questions. And then maybe let's pick up. Okay, here we go. With the whole outcry of what's happening with WhatsApp, do we have to leave or delete the account if not deregister to other applications? This is an interesting one. And I think all of us have um, an individual opinion about this. 
myself, uh, as much as I value my privacy, I actually opted to keep using WhatsApp. And the reason being is that I understand that they will be sharing metadata, so device um, data, um, frequency of, of use of the app, my number and an email and login, well, not login details, but email or account related information with the likes of Facebook, which is the owning entity. Um, and, and really the, the purpose of that is to create valuable data about each of us as, as users so that they can create targeted marketing on their platforms and even sell those profiles to, to big, big corporations or bigger corporations. Um, the, the rationale behind my choice to, to keep using it. And please, disclaimer, the, the views and opinions of myself and Candice are not the views and opinions of Mobius Consulting. Um, so I, I really just thought, okay, I actually don't have a Facebook account. So, you know, it really doesn't matter to me all that much. The other thing is the US government doesn't really care about my messages in any way, and they are encrypted. Um, Facebook won't have access to your messages. They remain encrypted. Um, then the other thing was, I don't really feel like I want to haul all of my contacts onto a new platform, um, which, which I haven't really used and I'm not familiar with and make everyone use that platform. And then lastly, yes, we can use other platforms, but you know, when, when, when does the day come that they have to sign big corporate agreements to, to sell data to, to you know, big data companies and, and the, the likes of Facebook? So I think it's really, in my mind, a matter of checking my personal privacy settings on my phone. I immediately went and I checked, you know, I enabled uh, two-factor authentication on WhatsApp. I made sure that only my contacts are allowed to see certain information. So it's really just to control. Um, my own personal kind of data or personal usage uh, on the platform. I know there's a lot of divided opinions around this, um, but I think, yeah, I think, you know, whether, whether or not you choose to leave the platform, um, I think there are risks and, um, you know, maybe opportunities in using any of the available platforms out there. As we move through, and I know we, you know, we we almost reaching our our time. Some of the questions that haven't been answered, we will make sure we get through everything, and we'll send send through um, responses for some of the questions that we may not have gotten to. But just as people are maturing on their their privacy journeys, you a lot of people are going to get to that control monitoring or that monitoring or that audit phase. Um, and there's a lot of questions around, you know, um, as in if I'm an internal auditor. What are my, you know, what do I need to be skilled up in to actually be able to go and do an audit from a privacy perspective? Now, this does depend, um, and it depends on your size of your organization. So, obviously, if you are a, a large organization, you're highly regulated, um, and you know you you've got a full privacy team or full privacy office which looks after the organization, then you're going to make sure that you know your team is skilled up to be able to go and effectively um, do an audit. So you'd look at your your IAPP, which Raleen mentioned in the beginning. They've got a few key um, international certifications. So you can your your sub T, a sub M, a, a sub E, and it's all around you know um, certified uh, privacy professionals or either within technology space from a management perspective, um, just getting involved and understanding the European side of things. Um, and then ISACA's also got certifications around um, from a privacy perspective. And what that helps you gear up to is it puts you in different, different scenarios. It takes you through different privacy principles and it really gets you to that understanding. 
Whereas if you are a smaller organization, um, you know, the, the first starting point is, is you know, having your, your auditing backgrounds and your auditing skills, um, and then really understanding and attending the, you know, the webinars and, and looking through the free sources that are available out there, which really will guide you in terms of, okay, what are data subject rights? Um, you know, what needs to happen when I'm dealing with, with consent? How do, I, how do I manage and how do I navigate that landscape? Um, you know, looking at some of the free assessments that are out there to say, okay, fine, what are the key things that I need to be checking? Um, you know, we, we, we love like the Nimity framework. Look at the Nimity framework and, you know, really just it will guide you in terms of, okay, this is what I can, I, I need to benchmark against. And it really just gives you that, that guide. Um, because, because GDPR has been out there for a lot longer, um, there's a lot of test cases, there are a lot of things that you can rely on that can guide you. We often like to look towards that for guidance. And a lot of the, you know, our, our um, legislation, the Mauritius uh, legislation, that is all aligned to GDPR. So if you're looking for guidance, test cases, that's always a good source to go to, go to and, and to look at. Um, the other audit question is, do I need to get my external auditors in? Um, do they need to do privacy audits? Again, dependent on the size, um, um, a Mobius consulting wouldn't get an external auditor to come in and, and audit us unless somebody, um, a client of ours required it and, and they needed it requested where they wanted an external audit stamp to say, you know what, this, this is all in order. Um, whereas we would rely on other sources and, and other forms to say, okay, fine, this is what we've done from a compliance perspective. Um, if it was required, that is where you can say, you know, you need to pass it on to, to the person requesting it, etc. So those are just some of the, you know, when we move into the audit journey, as we move closer, and as we get further in our compliance journeys, when it comes to privacy, you know, it's things to consider from a, from a privacy perspective. One more question. Obviously, the guys that have to drop off, please, please feel free. Um, but what advice would you give, would you give to those within the facilities management space? Um, who deal with a lot of suppliers who request very confidential company documents, especially when signing on to a new contract. It's also a fair share of exchanging banking details, et cetera. So I think it's important maybe just to make the South African distinction here that that company related information is also seen as, as personal information. However, in the context of onboarding vendors or registering vendors, or you even as a supplier registering with, with potential clients, there's general vendor documentation and information that 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 is available and should be made available including directors information SIPC, that banking details etc to be able to to actually conduct business now that that's a, a reasonable reason to to request or share that information however the receiving party should still have mechanisms in place to protect that information once they do have it um so so I think, I think, you know, there's, there's different reasons for needing, um, you know, very sensitive information or, or like for like banking details, et cetera. But, but when you do have it in your, in your possession, do make sure that, that you apply the normal controls that you would apply to any individual's information to, to keep it protected. Because once you have it, um, it's up to you how you secure it and, and it's, it's your responsibility to protect it.
Yeah, I think, Raleen, as, as you know, as we get closer to, to our end, I think there was one, one key one that, that stood out for me as well in, in terms of some of the questions that we got beforehand. And, you know, we all speak about GDPR because it was like, it was big and, you know, it, it made everybody change. And I think it, it changed the landscape um, for everybody around the world because everybody was processing um, EU citizen information and, you know, privacy policies were updating and it made us take it seriously. Um, you know, what's going to make South Africa and MAU and, and you know, our other countries that are just stepping into this game, what makes them take, what is going to make our organize, our countries take privacy seriously? And for us, it's it's either, it's, it's a few things that, that could happen and, and we hope that it doesn't happen, that it doesn't get to that and, you know, people really just become more privacy focused and, you know, centric around it. But one, one major thing could happen is that an, an EU authority comes and, and finds one of our local entities um, because that will make major news and everybody will be like, okay, I, I now need to take, um, you know, I really do need to take this seriously. Um, the others is our, our actual own um, regulators or your data protection authorities within your countries actually fining you and, you know, really, really fining you big amounts. Um, and, you know, they've, they've got their eyes on, you know, who are the big people that, you know, may not be compliant already. So, you know, really taking something that's been a complaint and, and going with it and, and finding that, that entity, that will make, you know, sort of the teeth that everybody talks about a bit more real. Um, and really start getting people to say, okay, you know what, we are taking this seriously. So as soon as we start seeing that movement, and I think we are going to, um, that's when I think, you know, it's going to make the same noise that 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 GDPR did. And I think we've seen the movement from both uh, from both an MAU as well as a South African perspective in the last year. Um, we've seen the scrambling of companies. So I think it is it is definitely moving in that in, in that direction. It's good to see. Um, I'm hoping that it doesn't have to take a negative event for everybody to join, you know, the curve that we're going going up. And then just another interesting question that came through for university or loan providers in SA. Um, for unsuccessful applicants, how long do we need to keep the information? Can we use it for research and statistical purposes? So in, in, in many instances, there's not a specific legislation that prescribes for certain sets of data how long it should be kept. And I think this is just one of those, as well as a question we normally get is unsuccessful candidate CVs or, or related information. So if, if that's the case in, in your instance, you know, determine how long it's actually going to make sense to keep that information in your business. Um, I think this, this question refers to maybe keeping it for, for a year. Um, and then, I mean, after that period, um, de-identify it. Get, get rid of any information that could uniquely identify a Candace or a Relin, and then you are allowed to use it for your statistical and your research purposes. Um, as, long as, as long as we are practical in, in what we're collecting, how long we're keeping it, and if we want to use it for longer, uh, implement the required controls to, to, to take away any personally, personally identifiable information. Um, that that can really work as a practical example. Um, as something else like employee records is an example. If an employee leaves your organization, um, the, the norm is to keep the information for about four years based on the, the, the basic conditions of Employment Act. However, if that employee was injured on, on duty and um, a health and safety claim was made during the employee at your company, you're actually supposed to keep that information for about 40 years. 
So, so really, again, I think, I think the crux of, of our message is always is privacy and, and privacy compliance isn't always a black and white answer. It's really to consider it in the context of your organization, your industry, and the applicable legislation that applies to you. Cool. So I know we've 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 run past our our thirty minute mark. I know there's some very key questions. Um, so what we're going to try and do is answer some of them on on our chat function. Um, we also are going to send out any of the questions that we did answer today. So if you want to share it within your in, your in, or internal organization, you'll be able to. Um, and I think just from a from a summarized perspective, you know, some of those you know do's and don'ts or key things to to look out from a privacy perspective. So we are putting a a privacy checklist out um, over the next. Uh, I think a few days we put a lot out during this month just being privacy month for us um, so you can catch some of our, our things to our tricks and trades around around privacy but if we're looking at you know key things that that really stand out from a from a from a do perspective is really you know have somebody that's you know got overall accountability within the organization for privacy um, and make sure that that person is really supported by people throughout the organization don't try and take on the journey alone um, because it's not easy. I, even when you have smaller organizations, you still have to have a bit of a task team to, to really just help you out. Um, you know, make sure that you have your, your internal and your external privacy policy because your staff need to know how to handle information and then your transparency needs to be out there from a website perspective. And then that links to your, to your consent. Um, you know, make sure all your, all your data subject facing channels um, anything where a data subject is going to be giving you information or is going to be reading, make sure that privacy is embedded. Your notices, your consent, and please, I know we got a question around it, but don't deny services if a person does not consent to marketing. Um, you know, they have to obviously accept your terms and conditions, which are different, but marketing, you cannot have a checkbox that they, they must receive your newsletter. Um, and if they don't, then they can't sign up for your services. So, you know, just be careful around that. Um, I touched on a little bit, just, just understanding cross-border, know where your information is going um, so that you can, again, inform your data subjects, let them know, um, just understand it. And then for me, third parties is always a big one. Um, it's, it's a key one. So understand them, understand what risk they pose, understand how much information they are actually processing of your data subjects so that, you know, if anything had to go wrong, you've already got the right security safeguards in there. You've already got the right contracts and for your, for your high risk guys, you, you're doing due diligence. So you, you really are. And then really just make sure information security is, is there to support um, all the activities that you need their support in. Um, they often are already implementing so many of the latest and greatest technologies, but make sure that you guys align, uh, make sure that you have the privacy by design, you're doing those impact assessments before big implementation. So for me, if I had to say the big do's, those are the big do's um, and, and the positives from a, from a privacy perspective. I think you can flip them all and you can get the don'ts. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, you know, always act, act in the best way. And our thing is not about taking the stick approach or taking the, uh, the, any of the, the regulations or legislations and be like, okay, X, Y, Z, implement this. It's about guys, I need to do business. How do I make sure I do it in the right way from a privacy perspective? Okay, great. Thank you, Candice. All right, so just to end off, um, I know we've, we've been really speaking about uh, privacy and, and 
you know, not, not really around our privacy approach and everything like that, but just to, to remind everyone that Mobius Consulting really does, you know, offer really practical solutions um, across multiple service lines. And we've got a question around that. And that includes cybersecurity, uh, information security, third-party risk management, which is also quite topical when it comes to, to privacy and how you manage your, your contractors and some of the elements to, to consider there. Um, technology consulting and then management um, or, or te uh, technology assurance as well. All right, so we, we really pride ourselves in, in, in the realm of information risk management and how we assist our clients in, in realizing and implementing you know, controls to not only make them compliant, but to protect what's important to their business. All right, so I think with that, if there are no other further questions um, or comments, I'd really like to say thank you for everyone that has joined. Um, I do hope this was helpful. Please leave a comment, go like us on LinkedIn. Um, if you have a complaint, just don't direct it directly to me and Candice. <laughs> and we hope to do this in future if, if you found this, this valuable. I think, um, you know, just kind of addressing questions as they, as they come through is a really nice and interactive way of, of, of engaging with you guys as a community. So, so thank you from our side. And, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day ahead. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.